Uh, I'm going to start with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Uh, Lord, thank you so much for these beautiful people, and uh, just a high honor being able to share with them uh, what you placed on my heart uh, today. And Lord, uh, man, this has been a, this is challenging to me as we talk about what the real Jesus is, and it's so challenging to me because, Lord, I've already got an idea of who you are. And so my prayer is as we go through this experience together, we would all leave here with the challenge to be like the real Jesus, not the Jesus that we've brought in here even, but the real Jesus, the Jesus that we read in Scripture and the Jesus that we're learning about there. And so, Father, whatever that is, whether it's a big way or a small way, would you make us more like you? And when we leave this place, may we know, man, God's been working in this area of my heart, this, this part of me to make me more like him. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I just want to add my words of gratitude. Uh, man, we had hundreds and hundreds of people volunteering last week, and I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful because those volunteers, uh, all the folks that helped, I mean, uh, that shows you have the heart, the mission heart to reach our community, and that's impressive. And I just want to add one other great news is that uh, today our children are on the, in the new building, uh, not like to worship, but they're in there. And we're going to get a roof first, you know, but uh, they're in there. They're marking the, the rooms and, uh, and drawing pictures and all that's happening right now. And you'll see pictures of that later, I'm sure, on Facebook or, or somewhere. So that's exciting. Uh, listen, if you're just visiting or maybe you've kind of made your way back, the big idea of this whole series um, is actually kind of, it's an honest reflection. And I've been trying to be faithful to what I told you I was going to do last Sunday, and that is to, to, be, to be kind of sincere in my study of this. So most of us have sort of this, been guilty of designing a Jesus that we could tolerate. We've come to Jesus and we have this idea, we'll just create a Jesus that can fit my lifestyle or fit a Jesus that can fit what I believe politically or socially or, or sexually or whatever, but designing Jesus to fit what I want to do with my life and my understanding of love and my worldview. And, and we went to Jesus, if we went to a Jesus restaurant, we would sort of order up a Jesus that would be something like this. We want a supersized Jesus with extra grace, uh, double forgiveness, hold the hard truth with a big order of don't make me feel bad about anything I want to do uh, on, the, on the side, and then answer every prayer I ever offer, if you would please, and protect me and the people I love from any hurt or pain in, my, in our lives, and eventually, if you could, just take us in our sleep. That would be the perfect Jesus. Then we grab that Jesus, and we put him in the car with us, and we start driving around through town, Well, then we hit a pothole of some kind kind in life. The wheels fall off, a relationship breaks down, or financial ruin, or disease, or uh, discouragement, or depression, whatever, something happens. And so we reach for the Jesus that we just purchased, the Jesus that we've designed, a la carte, so to speak. And we grab for that Jesus and say, okay, Jesus, my life, the wheels have fallen off in this moment, so if you would, fix it. And Jesus that we just designed says, I can't. You know, you feel ripped off. I feel ripped off in that moment. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean you can't? I mean, I just supersized you, you know? I mean, what are you talking about? You can't fix this. And Jesus says, "Uh, I can't because I'm not real. I'm a Jesus you created. I'm a Jesus that you, you wanted. I'm not the real Jesus. I'm a Jesus you made up and I never was real. And when you have had that experience, or maybe you're having that experience in your life right now, that leads to two kind of questions that sort of haunt you as, as followers of Jesus. And the first one is this, do I really believe in Jesus? And that's kind of disconcerting because, you know, like, I don't know. What Jesus do I believe in? Is it Jesus or is it something I made up? And this is the second one that sort of haunts us. Can I really trust him? If I reached for him when I, my life hit a pothole and he didn't show up, can I really trust him? And so what we're doing as a church, if you're just checking us out, or maybe you came last week and you're coming this week to say if we're staying true to it, 
we started this ambitious journey of trying to look at the real Jesus. Here's my theory behind it. If, we are, if, if some of us in the room are going to choose to reject Jesus, if that's what we're going to do, well, let's at least make sure we're rejecting what's real. Fair? Let's not walk away from something that's a figment of somebody's imagination. Let's actually say, hey, that's the real Jesus. We studied it together, and I'm choosing to walk away. At least we're walking away from reality and not something else. And if some of us would say, you know what? If that's the real Jesus, I'm all about him. And we're going to choose to accept him and embrace him and live a life after him. And if that's you, then at least, at least on the front end, we'll all know what we're getting into. So no more games, no more plastic, no more artificial. Let's just get real up in here with Jesus. And let's see what the whole thing really is. And so here's what I know. I didn't know it until I did it the first service. We are all going to get uncomfortable in this room here in the next few moments. Aren't you glad? We're going to get uncomfortable in this room. And, and, and because and the reason is we're really going to try to stay true to the real Jesus. And so what that means is this is going to make some of us who are church people very uncomfortable. And then it's also going to make some of us who are non-church people pretty uncomfortable as well. Basically, I'm going to seek to equally offend everybody in the room, if at all possible today. That's the goal. And, uh, and so, but I'll just tell you this. It's been offensive to me too. It's been offensive to me. So we're going to pick up where we uh, left off last Sunday with that incredible introduction. And um, if you missed it, you can go to livewesleyan.com and all the kind of messages are there. You can listen to them whenever you want to. There's a podcast if you don't want to use data and all these other kinds of things are out there. You, you, can, you can check it out. But basically what we talked about last week was Jesus heals a guy who is paralyzed. He has these four friends, and uh, they take, G- take, take their buddy, they lower him right in front of Jesus where he's teaching, and they basically say to Jesus, hey, can you fix our friend's biggest problem? And Jesus says, yeah, sure, your sins are forgiven. And the whole room was disappointed because they're like, mm, that, that wasn't what we were thinking. <laughs> we weren't thinking about his sins. You know, that really wasn't where, what we were interested in, and that's true for most of us. See, most of us haven't spent a whole lot of time this week thinking about the whole sin thing. In fact, we could probably care less about that. But we have been thinking about a bigger issue, a front and center issue in our lives, something that's right before us, higher priority right now, and it's wrecking us. And so what we want is we want Jesus to sort of fix that issue. But here was the kind of the big issue we took away from last week and from the real Jesus. It's this. If we don't allow Jesus to fix what's going on inside, nothing on the outside really is going to change for long. So you may come into a room like this, and I may come into a room like this, and there's something on the outside that's really a big deal, and we've been carrying it this week. And that's legit. But don't ask Jesus to fix this, but not ask him to fix this. Because Jesus doesn't see the distinction. Jesus says they're both one. Jesus says the real Jesus, as near as we can tell, says they're together. Jesus says, let me heal your heart, and then I'll work on the outside stuff. But first, you've got to let me have your heart. So Jesus leaves that house right after healing the guy who's paralyzed, and he eventually does. He says to them, says, hey, you know, what's easier? Say, get up and walk, or sins are forgiven. And then he says, but so you'll believe, I'm going to say this dude can walk, and then you'll know that I can have the power to forgive sins. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He heals the dude, the dude gets up, walks out in the whole house, goes out, and they celebrate the guy can walk. Right after he walks out of that house, Jesus begins walking along, and and he, he comes to the Sea of Galilee, and this is the next same chapter of the book we talked about last week. And Jesus is walking along, he comes to the Sea of Galilee, and, and, and this is where we pick up the story. Mark chapter 2, verse 13. A large crowd came to him. Let's pause. So what we got right now in Jesus' public ministry is this. He's healed a guy who has leprosy. 
And now he's made a guy who can't walk, he is now able to walk. And so word has spread like wildfire that this Jesus is the best show in town. I mean, this is an amazing thing that's happening. He's a healer. He can pull rabbits out of a hat, that kind of thing. So the crowd is huge. And Jesus begins to teach them, which is all fine and good, but they're really there to see the the rabbit get pulled out of the hat. As he walks along, he sees Levi, who later they went into the gene business. Levi, son of Alphaeus. I'm just kidding about that. Now, but it is important you pay attention to son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and he followed him. So we got the big crowds following Jesus. They all wanted to be there when Jesus does his next big trick. And so that's exciting. But then he comes to this dude, Levi. Now, just so you're clear, Levi is one of those names in Scripture of people that has like two or three different names, and it's in there just to confuse us. So this is Levi, and Levi is also the guy, his name is Matthew. So if you've ever read the first book of the New Testament, that's Matthew, that's this dude, Levi. That's who wrote that. So Mark makes sure to include this little piece right here. This is Levi, son of Alphaeus. Now, it's really important that that, that that is in there because Mark wants the reader to know Levi's Jewish. And, and to the crowd that Mark was writing to, everybody would have understood, oh, yeah, that's Alphaeus' son. Alphaeus is of this tribe in the Jewish faith, in the Jewish religion. Now, why does he include that? Well, here's why. Levi is a tax collector. Now, I know some of us in the room, we have different opinions about tax collector, but we've got we to erase that, and let's go deeper. See, what would happen is the Rome, Romans had taken over Israel, and the Romans had raped and pillaged Israel and the people and martyred and killed. I mean, all the nastiness of, of, of taking over a country had happened. But what the Romans had this system in place, and that's why they were such an amazing conqueror of the world, <laughs> and that was that they had these systems in place. And so when Rome pulled out of, after kind of stripping the, the area of all its wealth, Rome would, would, would put these tax collectors in place. And the purpose of the tax collector was to continue to take money from the people in that region. But what Rome did is they would go to the people of that region and say, hey, we need one of y'all. I don't know if they said y'all or not, but well, I need one of y'all to come forward and be the tax collector. So don't miss this. So Jewish people, one of their own would come forward and collect taxes, which is okay. Everybody's got to figure that out. But here is the thing. Rome's Rome's tax was over the top. Some people say it was as much as 80%. I really don't know. But what Rome said was, you can collect all the taxes for us, and then anything you collect above and beyond what we're asking for, you can keep. So imagine, one of us collecting taxes from us, and we're paying Rome, we got to pay Rome, but on top of that, he's charging an X percentage above so he can get wealthy. So you can imagine how popular Levi would have been in town. To be a tax collector in that day and age, listen, would have been to be the worst kind of human being. That's why scripture always says, often says, tax collectors and sinners, tax collectors and sinners in the same clause. This is the worst kind of human being because he's representing a bully nation and he's continuing to bully the people of his town. And then he's getting rich off the backs of the family, people that he grew up with, people who are already oppressed. So to be a tax collector in that day and age meant you walked away from everything. Once Levi decided he was going to be a tax collector, son of Alphaeus didn't matter anymore. 
Because Levi had to walk away from family. He walked away from synagogue. He walked away from temple. He walked away from everything and chose the almighty dollar or drachma or whatever it is they had. So now you don't have any family. Why? Because you're one of them. Who? The oppressors. You're one of those people. Even your family doesn't like you. Even your family doesn't talk to you. And Mark wants everybody to know, hey, this dude has some family. He's the son of Alphaeus. Real Jesus is walking along. All the crowds are following him. And guess what this dude does? The, the real Jesus walks right up to Levi in his tax booth, and he stops and has a conversation. Now, this was a big, big deal. As soon as Jesus had said to Matthew, to Levi, hey, why don't you come follow me? Some of the people in the crowd that were church-going people, some of the religious people in the crowd began to leave or began to hiss or boo or send nasty emails. That's what they did because they couldn't understand why this man who says he's the Messiah would hang out with Levi because the majority of the Jewish people in that day would have said this, Levi is so bad, he doesn't belong to God anymore. That's what the majority of people believed. God has rejected Levi. God hates Levi, and if God hates him, so do we. And do you know who believed that the strongest? The little Jewish boy named Levi. Yeah. God walked away from me, no doubt. God rejects me, no doubt. God dislikes me. Even Levi, he felt, felt he didn't belong there. He was wealthy, but he paid the price. He was an orphan living in a community that treated him as if he didn't exist. The real Jesus walks up to Levi in his little tax booth, and he says to him, You want to be friends? <laughs> Come follow me. You want, to, you want to be friends? Now, keep in mind, Levi has never been asked that since he took the new job. But Jesus walks up, hey, you want to be friends? Have community, you know, maybe have some fellowship, have some friendship. I don't know if he said fellowship, but have a meal together. And that's exactly what happened. Check this out, verse 15. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, nobody ever would have done that because that would have started the rumor mill. Hey, I heard you were hanging out with so-and-so. I'm praying for your soul right now, lest you burn eternally. And that was part of this culture. Jesus is having dinner with Levi's house, which is okay. It's just one tax collector, maybe, you know, whatever. But unfortunately, the scripture goes on. Many. That's translated like a mess, like a whole bunch, a whole lot of tax collectors and sinners were eating with him. Sinners is an interesting word. I'm going to come back to it. But oftentimes the word sinners, when it's used like this, is referring to sexual sin. But just stay with me. Tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. Pause, because now we're pressing on some real Jesus stuff. This Jesus that we are studying didn't avoid people who were living lives that were not like his. In fact, this Jesus, the real Jesus, embraced people like that, hung out with people like that. I grew up in a, church, in a kind of church environment that said, don't ever hang out with cruddy buddies, right? <laughs> well, Jesus, that seems to be all he had. 
So Jesus is hanging out with many tax collectors and many sinners. And then it says, many followed him. Many what? Six slimy sinners. They followed Jesus. And the religious people didn't like it. Jesus says to Levi, hey, you want to be friends? And of course Levi wants to be friends. He's an outcast and a reject. So Levi throws a dinner party. Well, Levi, guess who comes? He doesn't have any friends other than outcasts and rejects. And so societal outcasts were invited to the party and sinners. The word sinners actually means missing the mark. And what that refers to and the way that that terminology came to be was basically this. These were people who didn't care or were not educated in the ways of religion. So they totally missed the mark. That's That's what that word means. So they're classified as people who don't get it. So here we have the real Jesus hanging out with one of the most despised people in town and a bunch of people who don't get it. Most of the tax collectors and sinners who the religious people would say, God has written off, actually couldn't wait to get in the room with Jesus. This blows my mind. Most of the people who were sinners or tax collectors or struggling in the sin, not that it was in their past, I'm talking about in their present They were attracted to the real Jesus. And so they accepted Jesus' invitation to be friends. When the religious people, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? For Jesus to eat and to hang out and to laugh and to tell jokes and to celebrate and to have a meal together with these people was something religious people were not supposed to do. And so the religious people went ballistic in this moment. They said, hey, we have laws. We got laws against what these people are doing. We got sex laws. We got money laws. We got cheating laws, lying laws. We got laws about what they dress and what they do on the Sabbath. We have all kinds of laws. And they, they did. They really did. They could actually point to Leviticus where some of these people could actually be like killed for what they were doing. But the Romans came in and said they can't kill anybody anymore. Only the Romans could kill people. And there sits Jesus in the middle of these people that the religious establishment could kill. And there's Jesus eating food and banana pudding and having a good time with them. And it's the real Jesus. And he's not just having a blast. He's not just there to check off something on an evangelism list. He's there asking them to be friends. Are you guys, you got any buddies? I, I need some buddies. Let's be friends. Anybody got a kayak? You know, those kinds of things. I don't know what they talk about. But that's what he was doing. But Jesus, now one thing about Jesus, I don't know how he does this, but he, the real Jesus seems to be able to hear things even when you don't mean for him to hear things. So be careful. I'm just telling you, that's just a word for free. But on hearing this, verse 17, Jesus says to them, and hearing them, like, why is he hanging out with these people? Jesus says, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call righteous. I've come to call the sinners. Now these, these are dramatic words because all the religious people All the church people thought this was their Jesus. And he is their Jesus if you're talking about someone who's willing to come and save the sinful and the lost. 
So here's the analogy. Imagine there's this terrible accident that takes place right outside of a hospital, let's say. Big car crash and, I don't know, maybe a horse and buggies involved or whatever. But it's tragic. A tragic, tragic thing happens. People are badly wounded and they're covered in blood and broken bones and, you know, open wounds and people can't walk. And, and some of the wounds are so extensive that the people are actually fighting for their lives. And then imagine that we all get to the, to the scene of that accident and we start grabbing people and picking them up and we start taking them to the front step of the hospital. And then right there on the scene, right there in front of the hospital, we just say, oh, thank goodness, you know, there's a hospital right there. And so we take and drag them up, you know, we, we put them there at the hospital, right there at the front door. But someone at the front door of the hospital says, no, 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 you're going to have to turn, turn this around. The, the, the broken people and they need, they need a hospital. And they said, no, no, we don't, we don't take wounded people here at this hospital. You have to go down the road for that. We only take healthy people here in this hospital. This is a healthy people hospital. No wounds. You have to go down the road. The real Jesus is literally saying to the real church, is people don't need a church to tell them they're a mess. People don't need something to reveal all the jacked up areas of their lives. What the people need is love and acceptance and friends. They need compassion and mercy. And they need hope and forgiveness. Our need is truth. But only truth offered in the context of love and acceptance. And if you're a hospital that does nothing and cares nothing for the broken, sick, and destitute, then you suck at being a hospital. People already know they're a mess. Stop telling them they're a mess. They know. You knew. And so did I. And I didn't need somebody in their self-righteous attitude coming and telling me that I was a mess. Fair? I didn't need it. People don't need me to judge them, and they don't need you to judge them. What people need is me. What people need is you. People need friendship with you. People need a personal relationship with you. And you know what? The real Jesus and his model worked. It really worked. Levi becomes Matthew and he writes the first book of the New Testament. Now you can read it for yourself and you know Levi's story. And Matthew writes down some words that he heard Jesus teach one day. I'm going to share them with you from the message paraphrase. This is Jesus speaking because it shows that Matthew actually got it. He says, don't suppose for a minute that I have come to demolish the scripture, either God's law or the prophets. Jesus is saying, that's not why I've come. I'm not here to demolish it. I'm here to complete them. I'm going to put it all together and put it all, pull it all together in this vast panorama. God's law is more real and lasting than the stars in the sky and the ground at your feet. Unless you do better than the Pharisees, unless you do better than the religious establishment and the matters of right living, you won't know the first thing about entering God's kingdom, Jesus said. See, Matthew got it. Matthew saw something more than religion. He saw a relationship with Jesus Christ, and he threw himself into that relationship with the real Jesus. He never meant to become religious. He meant to become a follower of Jesus Christ. Full mind, full soul, and full body. And the reason Matthew heard of the truth of Jesus is because he felt the love of Jesus first. Hey, you want to be my friend? 
And as a result of Matthew being welcomed into Jesus' family, he was changed. And it's not just Matthew. One day, Jesus is actually eating with some religious people, and they're real Jesus. You can read it for yourself, push back, see if there's something different in there. And this woman with this sordid past, full of sexual brokenness and all that goes with it, all the reputation, all the name-calling, all the rejection, all the nastiness that's related, all that, she comes into this house. Apparently, somewhere along the way, she had heard Jesus teach. And when she heard Jesus teach, she, something happened in her. And so she sought Jesus out. At that time, he's eating at the Pharisee's house. You just kind of have to take my word for this, but they reclined, and that meant their elbow was toward the table, and the feet were laying out back behind them because I guess the chair hadn't been invented yet or something. I don't know. But anyway, it's kind of the feet are out there. He kept the feet, which was the nasty part of who they were, away from the food. The lady walks into this with this bottle of perfume, and she's thinking, I'm just going to anoint Jesus' feet. I know I'm not welcome here. I know this isn't a place I belong. I'm going to... I'm going to anoint the feet of Jesus. And so she goes into this room with all these religious people who have judged her her entire life. And she boldly walks into that room and she kneels down behind Jesus and pulls out the perfume to anoint Jesus' feet. But she's so overwhelmed about the man who said, will you be my friend, that her tears start to flow. And it's so dramatic that it actually makes Jesus' feet wet And so she takes her hair, which is all she has, to kind of wipe the feet of Jesus with her hair and her tears. Sign of respect and a sign of love. It's beautiful, isn't it? Isn't it? Beautiful picture. Not to the religious people. What the religious people do is they start criticize, because that's what we do apparently in church world. We start to criticize Jesus and start to criticize the woman. They start to say, man, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman she is, what kind of woman was touching him? She's a sinner. Again, there's that word. She's a screwed up sexual person who has made every sexual mistake made known to man. And there she is touching the real Jesus. But here's the thing. The real Jesus knew exactly who that woman was. And I hope to God that pushes on your understanding of who he is. Knew exactly what the woman did, her sordid past and her blemished reputation. And you know the difference between Jesus and the church sometimes? Jesus still loved her. And you know what happened as a result of that? Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. What that must have meant to this woman with the reputation... And scarlet letter, Jesus says, oh, little lady here, your sins are forgiven. And the religious people still don't get it. They start, who's he to forgive sin? 
And if I was Jesus, I think every other word would have been, shut up. Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Saved from what, teacher? Saved from your past. Saved from the path of destruction that you're currently on. Saved from guilt and shame. And delivered into freedom and forgiveness. And then he said these words, and only then could he say these words. Now you can go in peace. The faith community hasn't done real well with lost and broken people. I think we get uncomfortable with people who act differently than we do. I think we become afraid if we hang out with a person who is sinning sexually that we'll start to sin sexually or maybe we're afraid that we'll remember that we did. Church gets a call this week. One of our staff people took it. And uh, said, hey, I went to your website as a father. Saw that y'all are a church that really wants to reach people. Our staffer said, oh, yeah, man, that's, that's kind of who we are. We want to reach people. Said, well, my daughter came to church for the first time last week, Easter Sunday, to be with y'all. Oh, that's great. I'm so glad. Well, not really. What happened? Well, apparently someone there, she didn't know, walked up to her and said, your dress is too short to be at church. I want to punch them in the face. But that wouldn't be like Jesus, so I can't do that. But I figure that must mean we had another guest with us, because certainly nobody that was associated with the live would say that. Hey, if you were that girl and you're here and you got a creepy message from a frantic pastor on Facebook saying, hey, you don't know me, but if that was you, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that was me. See, sometimes we that are Christians don't know what to do with people who don't know Jesus yet. See, we're sort of fine reaching people if they look like us and vote like us and act like us and have sex like we do. But we get uncomfortable if they start doing things differently than we do. See, I think the churches are fine with reaching people as long as they clean themselves up first. And the message that a church that has Jesus in a bag, the fake Jesus, proclaims is this. All sinners are welcome here as long as you're not too sinful. Or as long as your sin isn't on our list of really, really gross sins. You're welcome here then. And although that might be Tom's experience and sometimes Tom's perspective, that's not the real Jesus, just being totally gut-level honest with you. And you wrestle with it for yourself. You search Jesus for yourself. This wasn't the response of real Jesus. If we're going to talk about the real Jesus, then how about this? Let's talk about the real us in this room right now. Let's start with that. This is a room of broken people. 
who've all turned their back on faith at one time or another. This is a room that's people that's broken promises. They've lied to other people. They've made poor decisions sexually. They've destroyed a marriage. They've broken a family. They've wrestled with fear and wrestled with shame and lived with resentment and embraced an addiction and judged people we don't know and judged people we do know. We've used our words to hurt other people. We've hidden a behavior. We've fallen in a dark pit of pornography. We've been jealous of what our neighbor has. We've spent money to keep up an image. We've lusted after a woman. We've lusted after a man. We've spent too much time partying, too many chemicals, too much booze. We've been hypocritical, and now we're self-righteous. And the way we say it around here is this is a Me Too community, and we've all lived a jacked-up life, every one of us. Nobody gets a pass on that. What would the real Jesus say to me or to you if he walked up to our tax booth? Not today, but when we were in our darkest day. Everything I read, you can check me on it, but everything I read, the real Jesus would walk up to me when I was at my darkest spot, the spot that I don't ever want to tell my kids about, and I never want to be part of my marriage, and never want to be part of this pastor in this church, and he'd walk up to me and say, hey, Tom, you want to be friends? That's the real Jesus. Challenge me on it. Read it for yourself. Now, hear me on this. He never said what Matthew was doing was okay. He never said that the woman who walked in living in sin, he never said what she was doing was okay. The woman who was struggling sexually and in sexual sin, he never said it was okay. That's Jesus in a bag. That's, I think, a coward's response to all of it, to be honest with you. And I'm sort of fed up with it. See if you agree. This whole idea that we wink at everything as if it's all okay, and it's not. And it's not the most loving thing to say. It's all trying to make people feel right in the moment, but it's not the real Jesus. He never said sin doesn't matter. He never said that. And what he said was, hey, you've met me. Let's be friends. Now go sin no more. That's what he says. He came to seek and save me. He came to make sure I would get to the hospital when I was wounded and tore up. But he invited us to be friends, and he understands this. Something the church needs to start celebrating and understanding. Broken people do broken things, and it's okay because that's your story, and respectfully, it's mine, it's mine too. Come on. Of course we do. But the real Jesus followed the same pattern over and over and over again in Scripture, no matter who he met. He offered acceptance through friendship, and then he offered healing and forgiveness. Ready? Through the truth. Through truth. Jesus came full of both grace and truth. And what churches do, the same thing that individuals do. What we tend to do is we tend to pick one or the other. And when we start behaving and doing something that doesn't match up with what Jesus taught, we play the grace card. And we ignore the truth card. And churches do the same thing. We seem like we lift up truth on one side and make everybody feel condemned to hell. And then we lift up grace on one side and think there is no such thing as hell. And this church is trying desperately to try to figure out how to hold that thing in tension right in the middle. We are. Do I hit it out of the park every week? No, I don't. I don't. And so what happens is I find myself being able to offend everybody. (laughs) I'll say one message and I'll get an email. Hey, you're watering things down, Tom. And I'll do another message and think, man, Tom, that seems so judgmental. Always seems to be in the area of sexuality that I get that email. 
You're too strict, too much Bible. And I get it. I do. I get it. Because we are living in this tension as a church. And believe me, it would be so much easier if you would just let me go one way or the other. But that's not real, is it? And I hope when I die, not soon, but I hope when I die, that if one of you speaks at my, at my funeral, you'll say, that Tom, he led a church that offered way too much grace and way too much truth. And I hope that's your reputation as a member of Alive. If it becomes our reputation in this community, I'll get t-shirts printed for everybody. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. Grace and truth. We think it's the most loving thing to do. So let me be very, very clear on this. We will continue to be a church that will do whatever it takes to reach as many Matthews and Levi's as possible. I want to be clear. I don't want you to be surprised because I know that church isn't for everybody. But it's because we think that's what the real Jesus did. Some of you, the spiritual thing you have to do today is you need to go out there and find you, find you a cruddy buddy. Go find someone. Make it be your first question. Hey, are you sinning? Yep. Hey, you want to be friends? <laughs> That'd be great. Honestly, you probably don't have to go very far. Just try the lobby. I'm sure we got some floating around. <laughs> hey, you want to? And that's what I'm saying. Then you take them like, like the Waffle House. You say, well, that's, in, that's in the Bible. That's what Jesus did loosely. That's kind of what he did. And you go to the Waffle House, and here's what you do. You ready? Love the, f- love the fool out of them. Love the fool out of them. And here's what I say. And then they'll say, hey, Tom, or you, whatever your name is. Hey, you. So uh, you've been loving me. Would you tell me about Jesus? Here's what I say. Say no. Nope, not going to do it. Make them beg. That's what I'm going to do is make them beg. Hey, would you pray with me about, nope, not going to do it. Maybe later. Say, Tom, that's ridiculous. Nope, that's exactly what the real Jesus did at the Matthew party. Exactly. Hey, let's all eat together. Have a good time. Hey, Jesus, I heard Matthew's following you. Can we follow? I don't know. We'll see. Sure, you can follow me if you want to be friends. We followed him. And so this church will continue to push that envelope. We'll do songs that aren't in the hymnal. And the reason we're doing them is we're trying to reach the Levi's and Matthew's of the world. Sometimes something comes across the play set on the songs of pre-service, and they have words that we didn't know were in there because we remembered when we were kids that it used to be a real cool song. Actually, has a bad word in it. We didn't know. <laughs> you know how it is when you're listening to something with your kids for the first time? Oh, my goodness. What did we just do? You know, the Coffee, the greeters, the hospitality, the parkers, what's happening with the kids right now, the gifts, all of it is trying to reach the Matthew and Levi's of the world. That's it. And our plan is to tell them we love them and introduce them to grace and truth. That's the plan. See, you have spent your entire life, and so have I, walking around with amazing condemnation. We've been trying to manage amazing shame and amazing amazing guilt 
We've been living our lives trying to forget the amazing fear, the amazing disappointment, the amazing betrayals. And the real Jesus came to the planet and he said, hey, I want to give you amazing grace. I want to give you amazing grace. And that's what this church must be known for. Amazing grace and amazing truth. Thank you, Jesus, for these good folks. And I pray now that you would hide me in these words in your cross. I pray that you'd allow us to hold on to what we need to hold on to according to your agenda of our hearts and lives. We want to be your people, and we want to shine bright. And Lord, I know there are some people in this room who identified with Levi and identified with the woman who anointed Jesus' feet. I know there are some people in this room who are actually living a lie, and they know it because they've crafted a Jesus that's not in Scripture. And they know it. And they're doing their best not to pay any attention to what's being said because, frankly, Jesus, they don't want you the way you are. But, Lord, there comes a day, and many of us have done this, there comes a day when the wheels fall off and we're going to need something real. So, Father, would you make us a church that falls in love with real Jesus and then make us a people who are just bold enough, just courageous enough to link arms and follow the real Jesus with a real faith. In your name.